Hello and welcome to Nonprofit Profits, a podcast devoted to highlighting the people and practices behind the most impactful nonprofit work being done today. In a world full of reasons to lose hope, there are people working tirelessly to make the world better in their own way. Today, we have Betsy Vallette, an associate director from Cornell Prison Education Program, talking about bringing the power of education into prisons across upstate New York. Be prepared to be inspired. Without further ado, Betsy. Betsy Vallette is the associate director at Cornell Prison Education Program. Cornell Prison Education Program is a program run through Cornell University where it provides associate degrees to gentlemen that are incarcerated. So Betsy, thank you so much for joining. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Emmanuel. I'm excited. Okay. So the first question, this is all about prison reform work. And so specifically in the issues that you've encountered in your day-to-day work, educating people, what has been some of the biggest areas of need that people coming back into society have seen to seem to need? I would say um, that from my perspective, one of the number one challenges that our students have when they're coming home is technology. Um, Technology is something that has accelerated and changed so quickly in the last 25, 30 years. So our students who were incarcerated in the late 90s, you know, their latest uh, use of technology was something like the form of a beeper, right? And now they're coming home to essentially having something akin to a supercomputer in their hands that they not only need to communicate, use need to use to communicate with their families and their loved ones and, and for those sort of basic things that a telephone is actually used for, but, you know, that's how they're going to search for jobs with the internet. Everything happens through technology now. And because prisons are spaces in which our students primarily have no access to any kind of technology, much less any kind of updated technology that really prepares them to be able to utilize those things. That is what I would say is one of the biggest challenges that our students have. So it's not only understanding how to navigate a cell phone, navigate the internet, navigate a computer, but it's also the financial resources to be able to procure those things. And since everything happens through that medium of primarily a cell phone, it's really challenging for our students to even do things like um, get an ID, you know, scheduling all that stuff often happens online or just being able to call their parole officer and figure out how to navigate like this crazy iPhone or cell phone that they might have if they are lucky enough to have that in the first place. Mm, Got you. And so could you backtrack a little bit and talk about a little bit your path into CPEP into this education? Because that perspective that you've had, um, Usually when people who are not adjacent to this issue talk about prison reform stuff and specifically reentry work, they're talking about, oh, we need to get these people shelter, which is very important. Don't get me wrong. Shelter is super important. Food, money, jobs and stuff like that. But technology is kind of like the more overlooked aspect. So if you could talk about your experiences in this work that has led you to where you are. So my sort of 
prison origin story, my prison work origin story is a little bit different than I think other folks. My foray into prison work, I never had a background in criminal justice or anything like that. I've always, I grew up in Ithaca. So of course, social justice is kind of embedded in that DNA, I think with anybody who grows up in this town. And so that has um, always been something that was instilled in myself, just from my family and those kinds of things. And I've always had a specific interest in that. But my background is actually in education and specifically in um, community college education, which is where I taught for about 15 years. And I was primarily interested in teaching in a community college setting just because of there's a very direct, um, I think, pathway between social justice and access to education that exists in the classroom of a community college that doesn't necessarily exist in sort of the more self-selecting elite spaces that you might find on like a private university, specifically like Cornell or Ithaca College's campuses, right? And so that was always of interest. And I had been doing that for 15 years and enjoying a lot of those aspects, especially in terms of working in a diverse classroom. And that really led me into volunteering to teach inside a prison classroom. And once I started doing that, I remembered why I went into teaching in the first place because I was admittedly after 15 years getting a bit burnt out from that. Um, and so really got invigorated, but specifically through the project of higher education in prison. And so after volunteer teaching through the Cornell Prison Education Program, teaching a couple of English and history courses. I became one of the coordinators at the Five Points Correctional Facility and worked with students in that regard for many years and also at Auburn and Cuyahoga Correctional Facilities as well and really enjoyed doing that kind of work. When pandemic happened and blew everything up, um, many, many, many of our students came home. We did not at the time have a re-entry program, but because we had so many students coming home during that time, somebody needed to help them navigate this insane world. Imagine being incarcerated for 30 years and then coming home, not just coming home, but coming home amidst pandemic. That was like an insane time for everybody. Um, we do fortunately now have an amazing re-entry director, Richard Rivera, who works with our students very closely. I'm primarily doing more of the academic aspects of re-entry with our students. Now on the outside, in addition to still doing things and student service types of things with students and teaching still inside the prison. Awesome. And so one thing that I realized in this path is that I did not hear the call of Wall Street or tech or any of those um, like professional service industries, quote unquote, to allure you away from that path. And so naturally, especially for me, um, there's this whole push and pull between do I go off and do this nonprofit work, super impactful, but you know, we don't get paid like that. Or do I go ahead and, you know, do this corporate operation, which there are merits and values too. So in your experience in making that decision and committing to this trajectory, was that like a, always a given that you're going to be, oh, I'm going to be on this path? Or did you like flirt with those other private sector ideas at some point? 
Oh God, no. I always knew I would be poor, 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 relatively speaking, <laughs> of course. But if you're going into A, oh, if you're going gosh. into teaching in a community college or really any kind of public teaching or any kind of nonprofit work, just know that that is not where the large dollars are happening. And so don't have get paid, have the expectation that you need. I think if we're trying to, I'm certainly trying to instill this in our students when they're coming home and they're, um, you know, talking about their lived experience, that's valuable and they need to be compensated for that. But it's never going to be the tech world, Wall Street dollars in, in that kind. And that's never been particularly appealing to me. I think I worked for maybe six months in sales and my soul died every single day. But I made a lot of money, but my soul was dying every single day. And so I'm much okay. happier. I think it's much more important to like be able to pay for things and take care of your basic needs, but also be doing work that really feeds your soul. And this work certainly does. Okay, beautiful. And so how do we get college students to see the allure of that? Because especially with this whole, uh, I don't know if you know, but the way that college is going expense wise, the tuition, the boarding, the housing is insane. So people are looking at their debt after gra they graduate college and they're like, hmm, this nonprofit thing would be cool, but it seems unfeasible. Do you know of ways that we can like push that um, more nonprofit trajectory more in college populations? Because I feel like that would be something that is dope. There's so many people who end up going to um private sector, not because they want to, but because they feel they have to, you know? Yeah, this is all kind of interwoven into like a lot of the bigger problems that I see with our sort of education system in this country and the same problems that our, our students, our CPAP students who are coming home, frankly, have, right? Our, our CPAP students are coming home and they're coming home, you know, feeling very behind the eight ball in terms of like making up for lost time is so often what I hear from them. And they want to, you know, they want to be able to pay their bills, not only pay their bills, but they want to be able to have some stuff. They've been incarcerated for X amount of years with very little access to stuff. Stuff is is fun, right? Stuff is the things that we are all motivated by. And our, our students certainly have those like very human desires. And it can be really challenging for them because they're often, you know, they get stuck pretty easily sometimes, I would say, or there's a pathway for them to easily get stuck into just being able to sort of pay for bills and eke out some kind of existence through doing some sort of like $18 an hour job at somewhere like Home Depot or something like that, when at the heart, especially like based on their lived experiences, so many of our students want to go into human services and go into those nonprofit jobs. But it can be really challenging because as we've just talked about, those nonprofit jobs don't always have the same dollar figure that's necessarily attached, not necessarily to a Home Depot job, but to some of the other jobs that are out there. Um, and I think that's a problem with where we place our value system and like how we compensate people just in this country. So it's not something I have a great answer to. In terms of our Cornell students, those things that I think can be encouraging and can often sort of motivate or inspire Cornell undergraduates who are sort of maybe dabbling in this it's really doing these amazing, like yourself, doing these amazing volunteer experiences and getting exposure to that, those kinds of things early on. Doing, there is a way, I think, to neatly parlay things like nonprofit management, even some of the tech things that you're you're talking about, into a little bit more of a viable, better paying career that's still working with nonprofits and still doing some of the human service work. But a lot of that is frankly dependent, I think, 
on the students getting exposure to that early on and getting hooked into some of this. Our program, for example, volunteering with our program has, I think, really changed the pathway for so many of our undergraduate students. We have many sort of law students or students who are interested in business that volunteer with our program that might have sort of aspirations to do corporate law or some sort of corporate work, but they really work with our students and they really get to know them and really see the sort of systemic um, challenges and injustices that our students have faced and not they they now understand through like a lived human experience what our students sort of understand a little bit more what our students go through and it's not just a theoretical mass incarceration sucks kind of thing right now they can really there's a face to that they've worked with our students they've gotten to know them so those are the things that I think are frankly the most valuable our CPAP students are frankly our most valuable resources I think in changing some of the trajectories of some of our Cornell volunteers. And so thank you so much for providing that insight and going back to the actual resources that people coming back into society need. So has there been any um, resources that you've seen that the government is throwing at that? So currently we're seeing in uh they're going through this whole like debt ceiling. We're about to hit it. A lot of government programs are kind of in flux right now, especially the federal ones that I know about that I deal with. And I just want to know in terms of like the government running programming in order to support this type of mission, has there been significant, you know, Albany push for it or is that unfortunately not the case? You know, I know it's something and I'm definitely not the right person to talk to about this kind of thing because I live in a very granular sort of either curriculum teaching world or I'm working very directly with our students. I've never been like the policy person or the person that kind of deals with government resources and that kind of thing. At the moment, I know that there is there's interest, especially from, you know, our state senator like um you know, web, there's interest among these things. And there's um, even amongst the Cornell campus and in terms of a lot of the lobbying that is going on. But it really has to do with like the politicians really pushing for that to actually happen. And sometimes these things I think are so far at a remove that it's really hard to sort of encapsulate what that experience necessarily feels like or looks like enough for some of the changes to be made. There are for sure changes that are going on and there are amazing policy workers that are working on making many, many of these changes. But in terms of just my experience and working with students um, that are coming home, and I will also add that our students, our CPAP students who are coming home are in a little bit of a different situation than necessarily other folks that are coming home from our incarceration. Our students have had, you know, have done higher education in college and generally are coming home to, generally are coming home to a little bit better resources in terms of family and financial resources than the general population of incarcerated people might be coming home to. So I wanna be really transparent about that. Um, but beyond things like social services and things like that, there aren't really any, and again, this is just from my own knowledge and not necessarily fact, there aren't really any government resources beyond sort of those basic social services that are necessarily out there for mm -hmm. our incarcerated folks who are coming home. And there's like, even if there are, they're not enough to sort of help them overcome the very, very real challenges 
that this specific population has in terms of a lot of the stigmas, in terms of being, you know, 20, 30 years behind the game in terms of professional um, development, in terms of technology. And so while there are many nonprofits that are working to help smooth out some of these gaps and perhaps using federal or state resources to do this, it isn't it doesn't feel like it's enough to really turn the tide. I mean, we're in an economic downturn right now across across the country, and that's like tripled for our incarcerated. That feels triply more challenging for our incarcerated students who have all of these other um, issues when they're coming home. Understood. And so that's a great segue into how the, the negative effects of the society multiply kind of on incarcerated populations. So no, you just mentioned how when the economy downturns for everybody, the incarcerated population or the formerly incarcerated population, it turns it's tremendously bad for them. And also I think in terms of the housing situation in America, especially in the big metro areas, uh it's very tough, very expensive. But then you put being formerly incarcerated on top of that, people run background checks. They really don't want to give you housing, and that's even more of a problem. What are some of those um, aspects that you've seen that become problems even worse for people who are formerly incarcerated as they reintegrate? Housing, for sure. Um, housing is especially challenging sometimes for our students if they don't necessarily have um, family resources or family place to go when they're coming home, a lot of the housing applications are asking for, you know, references and those things that our students just haven't had if they've been incarcerated. Can right? they like Again, contact the correctional facility and like ask them for some type of they paperwork? don't, I believe, contact. And there would be, and again, I don't have as much direct um, knowledge of working with this, just it's more hearsay from like what our students have sort of told us. Again, our reentry director probably has much more information on that kind of thing, because that's the area that he tends to handle. But just like, you know, I mean, it's hard enough, I think, as a person who, any person in this in this country who has like a lower amount of income to find to find housing and to like be able to give adequate references and that kind of thing. Oftentimes housing applications ask for like three years worth of references. They're doing credit checks. Our students certainly don't have access to those kinds of things. And not all of them are understandably comfortable about revealing the fact that they were necessarily formally incarcerated because there is such a stigma around this idea of being incarcerated. So those are all challenges that are difficult for our students. I'd also say just Many of these housing applications are also require that you have transportation to get to some of these places to be able to go and look at these spaces, which our students don't always have, or they're online and our students aren't always as adept at navigating the internet or have the tech, the access to the technology to be able to do those kinds of things. Got you. And so in terms of the work that you've been doing, the personal value that you've been getting. So when do you know you've done a good job? Oh my gosh. I think that's like a, a question that's like twofold because sort of in my um, first role, like first and foremost role sort of as an educator in the program, that's like an entire, that's a teaching question. That's like a pedagogical question. But like, I'll say, I don't know, like 
it's not necessarily I know I've done a good job, but I have like moments of satisfaction, just like any other um, instructor or teacher would have when you're like teaching and you see these like amazing aha moments, or if you have a teacher or if you have a student in another class again, and they reference something from your first class, or you see like just the sort of market improvements and oftentimes the writing and the critical thinking process and how our students are really like taking in and critically thinking about the world around them. That's like an amazing thing to see. And that absolutely is so inspiring. And I think that's like the brilliant thing about teaching specifically in a prison classroom. That's just like been the most inspiring. Like I learned so much from them and it's been the most inspiring motivational kind of thing to see in our students. And like, you know, we have a graduation at the Elmira Correctional Facility coming up next week. And to see our students graduate with their degrees, that's really a culmination. You know, in the grand scheme of things, of course I shouldn't say this because I'm in, in education, but an associate's degree, it isn't um, the way that our education system is set up now. It's not a guarantee of really very much, right? Like you've had access to this education, but you can't just go into any job and hand them like your associate's degree and say, now give me this like amazing high paying job, right? Mm -hmm. But for our students, it has such a different impact for them earning that associate's degree. For some of our students, you know, I work with students who are doing their homework alongside their children oftentimes, and their children are seeing their parents earning their degrees, and that's really inspiring to them. I've had students say, you know, I had a really challenging relationship with my family, but when I started this college degree program, it changed the way I thought about the world, it changed the way I communicated with my family, and it's really changed a lot of the relationship that I've had with my family. That's not the case for everybody, but that's certainly been a story that I've heard more than once for our students. So I think in terms of the critical thinking aspect and the access to resources and the and for our students, like being in what is a good Ithacan, I would call like a safe space of a college classroom, that's been really imperative for our students. Inherently, I think for any student, but especially our incarcerated students, like being vulnerable is a huge, like that's a huge part of being a student. You know that when you come to college, you have to be able and willing to say, I don't know the answer to that. Or actually I was wrong when I like put this answer down and it's okay that I was wrong because now I'm learning from this thing and I can move on to the next part. And that's like a huge step and a huge important component, I think, for our students is sort of acknowledging and being able to be in that uncomfortable space of vulnerability, but it's also a very um, safe space within the college classroom. So that part is really reifying and inspiring in terms of my job and feels like really one of the reasons that I'm so invested in doing this kind of work. And then I would say in terms of the reentry work on the outside, um, it's always amazing to just hear from our students how impactful our college program is and how much value they put into that, how they were put into community and put into conversations that might, they might not have ever encountered in any other space but the prison classroom. I'm trying to think in terms of the reentry and feeling kind of successful um, and what those things look like. It's always amazing to see students, you know, thrive on, in the outside space and just to be able to see what that looks like for them and to be able to, you know, have those conversations in a different kind of way and to be able to work with them in what feels like on a much more equal footing and sort of, it, or 
I, I appreciate that that sort of power imbalance that working inside a prison space is sort of um, blurred a little bit more on the outside. And it feels like mm. it's a little bit more on equal footing and that they have access to more agency and to more of their voice because they are not contained within the prison space. So you mentioned the impact that a degree from CPAP has, not only in terms of the market and getting a job, but really the impact it has on the individual. So I have a story for you. So there's this guy named Blackie Smalls. He's in Auburn and uh, he's in um, the Phoenix Players Theater Group run by Professor Bruce Levitt. He got into CPAP recently. And so, yeah, I know. Fantastic stuff. So that's amazing. Because I remember the last time I was there at PPTG, I was introduced to him because the students, there are a lot of CPAP students that are in there and they're like, meet Mr. Smalls. And I was like, you're going to do it. Just go take that entrance exam. I have all the confidence in the world. And he was mm -hmm. hesitant. I'm so excited that he got in. That's amazing. Indeed. And he was more excited than you. So all the guys in the group, um, we started clapping for him, you know, gassing him up because, you know, he'd been trying to do it for a while. He mentioned that he didn't have the confidence for it. He mentioned all these things, but even getting into CPEP was that confidence booster and validation that, you know, I can do something. And so that's always a beautiful thing to see how CPEP is uh, affecting people. Even before even before classes, y'all are doing good work. So we, we appreciate it. So in terms of the current work that you're doing, and how you stay engaged with it over a long period of time, because you've been at this for a minute. You know, you, you're definitely a veteran in this field. And how do you continually like maintain the hope? Because, you know, sometimes it can be a little bit draining doing this work when you see people. Sometimes they catch another offense upon leaving out. Sometimes they're not, unable to like complete the curriculum. How do you keep yourself motivated and engaged in this work through the ups and downs of it? It can be really hard um, sometimes. We've just dealt with it, and we do, I mean, the other side um, of this appropriately it's may 4th so i'd say the dark side of this right <laughs> is that it doesn't you know um we're working with human beings that are susceptible to mistakes and being in prison is traumatic right and so that's really challenging for our students and we can't it's it's hard to know i'm not a trauma specialist and um, an associate's degree in college classes are not going to fix the traumas of mass incarceration and the traumas of prison. And that's the reality. And that's the really shitty, cold, hard reality of this kind of work. And much of the time we're working with our students and we're working with them on successes. And the failures that we're often talking about are, you know, in terms of the classroom context, right? On the outside, that has a much heavier weight to it when we're talking about some of the failures on the outside. And that can be a lot to deal with. And I don't always navigate that really, really well. And sometimes like I have moments where I'm, where I'm like, what, what is the point of all of this? Um, it's, it can be really personally challenging, but I think we all have those moments and our organization, I think does a really lovely job in creating space to be able to talk about some of those things, because if you try and go at this alone, it's exhausting. And so I think we have a really wonderful um, group of staff and volunteers that we're working with to be able to talk about a lot of these things. And we always try and create these spaces in particularly for our undergraduate volunteers, because I know that that's also really challenging. Today, in fact, I just sent, um, an email out to our undergraduate volunteers, reminding them that um, next week is the last week of classes and that is a final goodbye. It is a very hard 
goodbye because all communication with these students that you fostered um, a working relationship in, in the classroom kind of comes to an end. That's not necessarily a reality on the outside that anyone has to deal with, but it feels terrible to have to say goodbye and, you know, leave. You must have just dealt with this, I, I imagine. Mm -hmm. at PPTG. These are wonderful people and individuals that you, you get to have this privilege to be able to work with. And all of a sudden, it's just like, bye, no communication after this, it's done, it's end. And those are the rules of the Department of Corrections that we all absolutely need to adhere to, to be able to do the advocacy of this work. And that sucks sometimes. And it's not a reality that we're all used to dealing with, but it is one that definitely exists to do this Indeed. work. I was, um, my last session at PPTG was last week. And so it was, a, it was a little unfortunate, I must say, because, yeah. you know, I spent up this whole semester going into the prison every week. And it's all, it's almost like ritualistic at this point. Like I go to Auburn, I enter these huge concrete walls, it's max security prison, watchtowers everywhere. And <laughs> despite the surroundings, I'm going into like, just talk about theater to act, to be goofy. And that it's like, it's such a wicked ju juxtaposition that had such an impact on me and like, it's gone, you know? And yeah. not even to mention like the interaction with these guys that I got to, like Blackie's hilarious, you feel me? So, and you're not, it's gonna be hard to get those types of experience out in the real world because, you know, prison creates such, is prison is such an extreme environment that people's personalities are manifested on a lot, on just a much more, massive scale so you really get to know people who people are because interacting with people in that environment is just that's what their medicine is that's what their communication is that's how you really get into the bonds there if we're trying to advocate this work and be really listening to these people and put their concerns first as we're doing the work because sometimes it is um an issue i see at times people they predict the need rather than ask what the need is which is not what we need to be doing. How do you make sure that in the process of your work, you're always addressing the need as it's generated by the gentleman inside rather than what you think or philosophize is what they need? Yeah, that can definitely that can definitely be challenging and full confession and transparency. I'm a very OCD type A uh, control freak sort of very motherly kind of person so that can be really challenging sometimes because um it's just like you you look at it as prescriptive right that kind of stuff however what i would say is based on my um years of teaching specifically in a community college and i would say honestly being a single mom those are the two things that i think prepared me the most for doing this kind of work and making that very student-centered kind of work so even in my own teaching I meet students, whether it's inside or outside, I do my very best to meet students where they are and to really listen because our students of all of the students that I've ever worked with, these are our, our incarcerated students have like the least amount of agency and the least amount of space to even figure out what their voice might be. And so for me, it's like triply important to meet students where they are and create a very student centric kind of environment and make sure and remind myself all the time that I'm listening to our students. I'm really hearing what it is that they're asking for 
and then making sure that I vocalize that back to them. So there's not, again, I teach literature, so I'm always, it's about communication, right? Um, always making sure that I'm not only hearing what it is they're saying, but that I'm repeating that to them so I can make sure that something isn't getting lost in translation for them. I don't always get it right, that's definitely for sure, but that's absolutely my approach to figuring out um, what those needs are and what might be the best ways that our program can serve our students. Okay. And so I must ask you, because you have this disposition of care, why did you hone in on specifically prison education work versus all the different various causes that you could allocate your energy towards? Um, because of our, to be really honest, because of our students. Again, I was somebody who grew up in Ithaca, so it was very versed in aspects of social justice those kinds of things, always very interested with working with an underserved population. Um, so was always invested and interested in doing prison education, but never knew, like never really got into it sort of my early years um, and hadn't really had an opportunity to be exposed to it. I think I had mentioned I had been pretty burned out from teaching prior to this. It was getting to be a little exhausting, but going, it's our CPAP students, frankly, that sort of are the ones that motivated and inspired me and solidified like prison education, higher education than prison is where my career path has certainly landed and will stay for quite some time. It's our students. They're so engaged and they're so excited and motivated and they're so brilliant in terms of like their perspectives they have such a unique perspective into the literature and into the history that we're looking at it's like exciting and it's incredibly it's like a selfish project for me frankly it's really really amazing to see and to hear what their perspectives are because it's such a very I live I have lived a very privileged fortunate life and it is such a different perspective that is so incredible and I'm just honored to be able to like get their perspective and to hear that point of view from them. Mm. And so in terms of the resources that to enable you to do your work better, was is there one single thing that if CPEP got to do this work better would fundamentally transform the amount of impact that you have other than money because we could I was like gonna say money yeah I know I know, <laughs> I know that's always it. like hey I agree but in terms of like more community engagement volunteering in terms of people if there's something that people can rally around you guys to give what would it be that it is not funny could be so many things. I think in getting, I think it would be great to have more Cornell faculty volunteering to teach in our prisons with our program. I think, um, I think it's good to get off campus, right? I think it's good to remember the teaching component of this work and what this might look like. I think it's also, um, dare I say, it's the reason I was never particularly personally for me interested in teaching in like teaching at Cornell or in an academic space like that, because for me, that's kind of um, replicating an already elitist sort of approach to an education or to academia. And that's not interesting. I'm much more interested in the project of education that exists outside of the university the university walls and that space and creating spaces of learning and creating spaces of education that don't necessarily correlate correlate directly with formal academia or education. 
Understood. And so this is the second question now. If you could have more money to fund one specific thing, what would you allocate that money towards and why? Um, I, so my dream would be, I think, honestly, to, for me personally, just in, in the work that I'm interested in, the work that I'm doing, if I could have, there would be two things that I would want to do. I would want to have some sort of, um, be able to have some sort of technology nonprofit that was able to allocate, um, not just computers, because our program does allocate computers to our students who are coming home, but also things like phones and being able to help with those sorts of resources, um, not just the actual physical phone, but then in terms of the phone bills and that kind of thing. But that was also a training program that taught our students how to use that kind of technology. Um, that would be one aspect of something that I would be definitely interested in finding monies for being able to work on. The other thing that I would also say would be so many of our students are, there are generally two areas that our, our students coming home are primarily interested into going into in terms of their work. One, it's either into the legal field or it's into human services. And um, both those pathways can be challenging when you're first coming home. And we've had students do that very successfully, but we haven't had enough students do it successfully enough because there are real financial barriers and resource barriers to that. So I would love to have more monies to be able to work with organizations to provide a lot of the sort of peer advocacy or human service certifications that our students are looking for that then pair them up, not just with um, organizations that are doing that kind of community service, peer advocacy, human service kind of work, but that help get them, you know, pay for their training, that help get them into entry level positions that maybe you're not making that much money, but it's an entry level position. You're doing work that's not labor, as labor intensive as something like a lot of the manual labor jobs that our students are doing, um, but you're doing these jobs that are entry level, that's in a field that you have lived experience and that you feel like you're a valued member of society and that can then put you in other positions where you can continually develop in terms of your career. There are other places for you to advance within your career. So there's actually a pathway to some kind of career development. Understood. So, so if you find those monies for me, please let me know. <laughs> so... At Google, there's something called Google Serve, which is like this program where we put different nonprofits on this like ranking and people like vote for what um what nonprofit like volunteering opportunity they want to do. I'm gonna see if I can do something about that actually. So with Strong, one thing that I'm trying, you know, we had Dad Cornell. So Dad Cornell was this program where we basically took a bunch of students from Long Island, New York, who were from one of the poorest areas there. We brought them up to campus in order to immerse them into the college campus life in order to be like, hey, instead of, you know, whatever the streets are telling you, why don't you come and listen to what these books and these professors are telling you come to get this education. And so with that program, we're able to bring so many students up onto campus. Hopefully I can do something like day in tech type of thing or bring these kids to the office, be like, hey, we want you to become tech people. So keep on working hard and do all that good stuff. So hopefully in this, we're going to keep on talking. We're going to keep on trying to conspire on ways to make good things happen. But if we can get like some Google Pixel phones, some Chromebooks up, you know, I mean, that would be, that'd be super dope, you know? Yes, 
I would absolutely love all of those things and a hundred percent to keep working with you and all of the incredible work that you are sort of personally invested in doing yourself. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. So that kind of is towards the end of all the questions. And thank you so much for giving your time. Is there any way that people who are listening can support the work that you're doing? Well, if you're a Cornell student, and um, there are many ways to volunteer with CPEP in our organization that are not just directly inside the prison facility. We always have many, many projects going on, and there are many ways that you can support um, our organization through your volunteer efforts, through specific projects that you might be interested in working on. So absolutely reach out through the website if you're interested in doing that um, 100%. So I would say that that's the one area I think our organization was really built on um, sort of our founding uh, folks of CPAP. It was all through sort of a community volunteer spirit. And that is really important, I think, for me to particularly think about maintaining and the ways that you can be involved in your community. I think oftentimes college students think about community as really that Cornell community on campus, but um, remembering that there's a community sort of outside the university that you're involved in and you'll be going and working in other communities. I think figuring out how to do some of that community work and being an invested valued member in the community is so important. And so doing things like what you're doing um, day at Cornell and really expanding what that idea of community work looks like, I think is really valuable. All right, Betsy Delight, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Emmanuel. Thank you for tuning in to Nonprofit Profits. If you would like to continue hearing from some of the people behind the greatest nonprofit work being done, please follow, leave a comment, subscribe, whatever your platform is on. Make sure you engage with it. Thank you so much.